Our Father, we do once again want to thank you for the gift of motherhood and the blessing our moms are to us. They gave us not only life in, a, in one sense, physical life, but that special way that you've designed mothers to be tender and to give a certain kind of care and understanding and love that is uniquely communicated through our moms. And so we, we thank you for them and we bless your name for them. And we acknowledge your wisdom and your goodness to your creatures and how you've designed the family and the family to work together to be a unit of commitment and love and nurturing one another. And we're all growing, especially us who know you, to realize that ideal in our own families, but it is so precious and we thank you for it. And we ask you now as we prepare to open your word that you would, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. You are ultimately our teacher And we ask you to teach us and to reveal to us the glory of the Son. And in revealing the glory of the Son, we see the glory of the Father. And we see the glory of the three in one, our great and majestic and triune God. And so we ask you to bless us with the sight of you, with the sight of your Son, with the taste of your glory and grace this morning. And we pray it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We are, of course, looking at the cross of Christ. We've been doing that for quite a while in the book of Matthew, particularly in Matthew chapter 27. We've made it as far as verses 45 and 46. 46 being when Christ cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sin-bearing suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of His people. And so, we've looked briefly at exactly what it was that He suffered in His own soul, and His own body, as Scripture speaks of, as He was on the cross in our place. But there's so many other aspects of the cross for us to consider, and we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks before we move on through the rest of the book of Matthew. And of course, this isn't exhaustive, it is... A time, though, however, to consider it from a few other angles. What God was doing upon the cross in His dear and beloved Son as He gave Himself up as a sacrifice for us. This morning, one aspect of the cross that we'll consider is the glory of God in the cross. And there's, there's one sense in which that's kind of the, the title for many other things that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. In other words, God's glory is revealed in His justice, His wrath, His grace. His glory is revealed in His love that's demonstrated on the cross. But we're going to consider just briefly this morning in John 12 as we prepare our hearts for the table. Specifically how God Himself and how Christ viewed the cross. How Christ and the Father viewed what Jesus was about to do. And in fact now already has done as He was to give His life up on the cross for His people. And while there's many places we could go, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 28 is a key portion of Scripture that unfolds this for us. Unfolds for us that in the mind of God, and particularly in the revelation of John, how he pictures the cross, it is a means, certainly, as we'll see, that involves suffering, that involves humiliation, that involves all the shame that Matthew and the other writers... Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke show to us, but particularly 
John views the cross and he presents to us through the lips of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus the cross in terms not primarily of its shame, but in terms of its glory. The way that the cross displays the glory of God and his redemption of his people. Now, this isn't necessarily the best way to do it, and there is a lot of overlap, but sometimes John's gospel is broken up into two halves. The first half being verses one, or chapters 1 through 12 in terms of the signs of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus through the works that he did, and the second half through the glory of Jesus dealing with his suffering, his passion, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And the thing, at least, that that shows is that there is an emphasis that's recognized in the Gospel of John that the cross is seen as a supreme picture of the glory of God in Christ. Now, let's just consider, before we look at the text, read it together more closely, exactly what does it mean then to say that the cross is the glory of God? What does it mean to talk about the glory of God? What is the idea of glory even mean. In the Old Testament, it has a literal meaning, the term there, to be heavy, to be weighty. It can be used in physical weight, in a a literal sense, but it carries with it more commonly and in most of its usages, the idea of a metaphorical sense. In other words, it communicates something else. It has the idea of wealth, of power, of honor, It has the idea of a good reputation. And it has the idea very often that we're familiar with as well of a visible splendor. In other words, some outward way that the glory and the majesty of God is displayed physically before his people. An example of that might be, for example, at Sinai when there was thunder and lightning and smoke and all of this going on at Mount Sinai. It was a glory of God that was visible to his people. In the New Testament, the idea of glory has a literal meaning in its common usage, not, actually not in the New Testament, but in the common Greek, of common or of opinion, of opinion. But in the New Testament, uh, that term that's translated glory really borrows a lot from the Hebrew idea in the Old Testament. And there's two main ideas, that of reputation and honor, and again, that of visible splendor. In other words, to speak of God's glory most often and commonly is to say a way then that God demonstrates who he is. He demonstrates his nature in a way that can be seen, in a way that can be perceived by others. And in John, a way that God's visible glory, his visible splendor is displayed is in the cross. It's in the cross. In fact, it is not only in the cross, but throughout the Gospel of John, there is a particular attention paid to the glory of Christ in all of his person as he came to reveal the Father. And this is just to set our mind in the context of what we're going to look at in John chapter 12. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, don't turn there, I'm just going to bounce around to a few other verses. He says this, you're familiar with this verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. 
And this glory that we beheld in Christ and that we behold on the pages of Scripture, John has already begun his gospel to remind us that it's a glory that didn't begin with his incarnation, although that had a unique glory to it. But it is also a reflection of the glory that he's eternally shared with the Father. He says in verse 1 of the opening chapter, again, words you're familiar with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When Jesus is about to return back to the Father, after completing his work on the earth, he says this in John 17, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the glory of Christ is an eternal glory. It's a glory of his divine nature. And there is then, of course, a glory of this divine nature that is uniquely seen and beheld and revealed through what he did as the Son in flesh. In other words, through his humanity. Now, in the Gospel of John... There are several ways that this is exposed, but one common way that is recognized is through the signs of Jesus. There are seven particular signs of Jesus or miraculous works or works of power of Jesus that are designed to reveal something unique about his person. Now, in fact, that word signs for his works is only used twice in the Gospel of John, but there are these key works of Christ following in that same trajectory that are recorded for us by John designed to uniquely reveal his glory. Let me remind you of just a few of of those seven. One is, if you'll remember, when he was beginning his ministry in chapter 2, he's at the wedding of Cana and he turns the water into wine. And this was said by John to be the first of his signs. The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and his disciples believed in him. It was a manifestation of his glory uniquely as the Messiah and as the Son of God. He mentions this again in chapter 4, verse 54, after the healing of the official son. This is a second sign, John says in verse 54 of John chapter 4, he says, This again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so each of these is pointing to an aspect of his person. Turning the water into the wine in a general sense is acknowledging that now the, the abundance of the kingdom is upon them. The riches and the fullness of God's grace is now upon his people. It has arrived in the person of Christ. In the healing of the official son, it highlights that his person and power, he is the one who came to give life, to give life to his people. Again, he does a sign on the Sabbath. In John chapter 5, he heals a lame man on the Sabbath. And his glory is revealed in this way, that he is one who is equal to the Father. As the Father works, so the Son works. As the Father receives honor for his works, so the Son receives an equal honor with the Father for the works that he does. He is one who is equal to the Father in every way. He is to be glorified and honored equally as the Father is glorified and honored. He reveals his glory in the feeding of the 5,000. 
And the idea there, as he will say later, is that Jesus Christ himself is the bread of life. He who believes in him will never, comes to him will never hunger. He who believes in him will never thirst. That all of spiritual life is centered in the person of Christ. He is the sustenance, the daily sustenance spiritually for his people, as was illustrated in the manna in the wilderness for the nation of Israel as God sustained them for 40 years on bread from heaven. In John chapter 9, he does another sign. He heals a man who was blind from birth. And this points to Jesus as the light of the world. In him, the truth of God is fully realized. In him, all that the Father is, is realized in its most masterful and full form. To see Jesus is to see the Father. He is the way and the truth and the life. A sixth sign was his raising of Lazarus. And there Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. And that sign pointed to him as the one, as he mentioned back in John chapter 5, who has the power over life and over death. The time is going to come where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will be raised, not only in terms of being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, but a future day in which they will be raised up out of the grave by the power of Christ to enter into his kingdom physically and enjoy the presence of his glory with the Father forever. There is another sign, seventh sign, that marks the glory of Christ. Actually, it was back in chapter 2. If you'll remember, right after the wedding of Cana, Jesus went into the temple and he cleared it out. A scene that was repeated when he entered into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry of Christ. And he cleared it out and they said, basically, what right do you have to do this? And the Jews said to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said this in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, the ultimate sign revealing his glory as the son would be his being raised from the dead. It is having the authority as the eternal Son of God. He says in John chapter 10, I have authority that he received this from the Father, both to lay down his life and to take his life up again. And so the ultimate testimony of the glory of the Son would be his resurrection from the dead. That death could not hold him. That he has absolute power as the eternal Son of God. So throughout the Gospel of John, he is building up this case, this witness, this testimony to the person of Christ, culminating in his resurrection, declaring that this is the Son of God. And these things were declared, as he said at the end of the Gospel, so that you might believe in him and that you might have life in his name. But there is also a sense, which we'll gather from our passage this morning, in which all of those things and all of those ways that the Father is pointing to the glory of Christ, that Christ is being glorified throughout his ministry, though ultimately being vindicated and displayed in his resurrection from the dead, there is a sense in which all of those things find an anchor point, a certain culmination in his death. 
in his crucifixion, in his cross, in his offering himself up as a substitute. And so it is here then that we'll see and that Jesus bears witness to in John chapter 12 that God's glory is uniquely displayed in Christ's sacrifice and then that glory is uniquely the glory of his children. Let's read the passage and then we'll look at it together. Begin with me actually in verse 23 and we're going to read down to verse 33. Really this section could be taken all the way to verse 36 but we'll We'll begin, actually, excuse me, in verse 20, and let's read down to verse 33. Verse 20 to verse 33 of John chapter 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so the people, the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The kind of death by which he was to die. Now let's notice first here then this. The cross of Christ is God's means of demonstrating His glory. If you were to write an outline point, that would be the first one. The cross of Christ is God's means of demonstrating His glory. Now we begin reading in verse 20 with some Greeks who were going up to worship at the feast. This is the feast of the Passover, the Not only the event of the Passover, but the feast that went along with it, which was a total of seven days. Now the people are going up. John has already recorded for us in verse 12 of John chapter 12, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with the branches of the palm and so on and so forth and growing out to cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's the Jews who are normally going up to celebrate at the feast. There's also others who were a witness to the great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the grave for three days. And so there's an excitement over Jesus already 
through the ministry that he had done. And then there's this other sort of fervent excitement over Jesus because of his raising Lazarus from the dead, this incredible miracle. And so all kinds of people are among and mixed in this crowd. And among those mixed in are Greeks, Gentiles. Now much of Jesus' ministry actually was in the area of Galilee, which was primarily focused on Jews, but there were certainly many Greeks and many Gentiles also who were aware of his ministry and aware of his teaching. And here there are some of these Greeks who have a unique interest in learning more about Christ, learning more about Christ. But there is a a rather odd turn of this event. I mean, the Greeks are coming up to him, these, they're asking some of his disciples to see Jesus, and Jesus gives this really striking response here, responding to Philip and Andrew, who came to speak to him. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, why did Jesus answer this way? I mean, wouldn't you think that maybe he would just say, hey, bring them along. Let me, let me explain things to them more fully. Let me bring them along. But he doesn't. He gives this really striking statement about the glory that he is about to experience as he dies. As he dies. Why does he answer this way? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because when these Greeks were coming to seek him... And Jesus already knowing that this is the end of his ministry and what he's about to accomplish. Their question, and indeed not only their question, but their seeking him, highlights the very purpose for which he came, which is the salvation of his people. Not only of the Jews, but also of the Greeks ultimately. Remember, even John the Baptist at the very beginning of his ministry said, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Israel. No, he said, who takes away the sins of the world. Who takes away the sins of the world. That ultimately was his objective. Not only the salvation of his people, but the salvation that he would bring to all people. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And now these Jews or these Greeks coming to seek Jesus highlights this purpose for which he came, which is to provide redemption for man, for mankind, and for his people. And Jesus also understood then that the way that this salvation would be provided, the way that this redemption would come to his people would only be accomplished through his death, through his death. That was always on his mind. Here, because of the lateness of his ministry, it's a little more on his mind than at other times. But here, it is overwhelmingly so. And so he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's going to involve him like a grain of wheat dying, going into the earth before it can bear the fruit that it was designed to bear. In other words, there could be no glory. There could be no glory of Christ. There could be no glory of the kingdom. There could be no ultimate glory of the Father in Christ and His coming apart from His death. Apart from His death. Apart from His suffering. 
And Jesus knew the full implications of this, as we've seen over and over, here uniquely through the eyes of John. He knew what that involved. And so in verse 27, as he contemplates this, he says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He knew. He knew that it would involve not only his death, but his sin-bearing death. And it troubled him. It troubled him. My soul has become troubled. It speaks here of this deep disturbance within the heart and the minds, the emotions of Jesus as he thought about what was coming upon him. The idea here of troubled emphasizes an ongoing state. It indicates that he was continually troubled by this as he was anticipating these coming events. He was continually Troubled at the thought of what was coming just a few hours, in some sense, the betrayal of Jesus in front of him. Now my soul has become troubled. It's the idea again of emotional distress. Interestingly, this same troubling of the soul of Jesus is used back in the event of Lazarus in chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 33... When it says he was disturbed, he was troubled, he was deeply moved, he was deeply stirred. Some translations have it. And really there it even has the idea of a certain amount of not only emotional disturbance, but even a certain kind of anger that Jesus had at that situation. It wasn't just that Jesus was sad because everybody else was sad. That's not what John was getting at in that. It wasn't, look, hey, they're crying and Jesus is crying. Isn't he really sensitive to everybody's emotions? That's not the idea. Jesus was indeed compassionate at the consequences of death and the grief that it brings, but he was also angered. And it's really hard to know exactly what kind of anger he had there. Was it anger at the unbelief of some among the crowds that still were not understanding who he was? Was it anger at the effects of sin and its destructive consequences that it brings upon man? Maybe both. But here there is a similar troubling and stirring of his spirit. And just not long after this, when he's having dinner with his disciples, he's going to experience the same stirring of his spirit and being troubled at the idea of Judas betraying him. In verse 21 in chapter 13, when Jesus had said this, he became Troubled in spirit, same word. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And so the hour that Jesus had avoided, or not avoided, but the hour that Jesus knew was still off in the future throughout his ministry now has come upon him. And that is the idea of hour here. Obviously, he's not talking about 60 minutes. It's used as a way to say, the time of these events have come. The time of my crucifixion has come. And it, and it encapsulates the whole complex of events that are about to come on to him related to his suffering. He knew it was coming, of course, throughout his whole ministry. But now it was here. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 2, don't turn there. When Mary asked Jesus to do something about the fact that they'd run out of wine, Jesus said this, 
Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. When they wanted to do him harm back in chapter 30 of, or verse 30 of chapter 7, he says, They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter or verse 20 of chapter 8, he says this, He spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But now his hour had come. He was safe before he was unhurried, he was untroubled because he walked in the light, because he walked in the will of his father, and because he knew no harm could come upon him outside of God's sovereign timing and God's sovereign plan. And the plan was not for him to die in some mob violence from teaching in the temple. The plan of God was that he would die by being betrayed and handed over by his people to the Romans to suffer on a cross. He knew that. That was the hour. That was the hour. And so he knows that that's coming and he is troubled in spirit. And so he says... My soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the very reason that I came. This is why the incarnation took place, that he might do the very things and experience the very things that are coming upon him. It's the hour that Satan so desperately tried to keep him from experiencing, as he constantly tried to divert him away from experiencing the cross. But now it was upon him. And there's some similarity here, some differences with what he would experience a little bit later in the garden. There he was actually asking the father if there is another way. So it was was even more in front of his face, as it were, what he was going to experience. Now it's a little further off. And he says this, Father, save me from this hour, not as an actual prayer. But he's saying this hypothetically, like, what, should I say that? Well, of course I shouldn't say that. Why? Because this is why I came. The idea is, well, why would I say that? How could I pray that? When this is the very thing that I was sent to do. But what is similar to the garden is the same resolve to obey the Father. The same resolve to be committed to the Father's will and what He had ordained for Him for the salvation of His people there was the same loving obedience to, of the Son to the Father to accomplish all that He had come to do. There was the same loving commitment of the Son for His people and those given to Him by the Father to redeem them, to save them. And that them, beloved, includes you and me who know Him. To save us, we could say. He knew what that would require And so how could he show this kind of commitment? How could he do this? Because he was utterly dedicated to bring glory to the Father. Utterly dedicated to bring glory to the Father. And a glory that would only be and could only be uniquely demonstrated through what he was to suffer. And that is the key point I want you to notice. That Jesus sees his death and his suffering in terms of glory. In terms of glory. In terms of his own glory, 
and in terms of the glory of the Father. Both are here. Verse 23, it's time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. This is his passion. And this is another display, really, of the irony of the whole gospel. The whole gospel message. I mean, again, this is exactly the opposite of human reasoning. Which is why, of course, the Jews couldn't understand this. In other words, this is exactly the opposite of what you would expect from one who was going to be glorified. In other words, this, that the glory of God was going to come in his suffering. How would he be glorified? Because he'll be crucified. How will the Father be glorified in his majestic and holy Son? By giving him over as a sacrifice. Glory, humiliation, rejection, acceptance, all working together in this one act. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. And this was the ultimate end of Jesus in everything that he did, was that through his life, the character and the nature And the glory of his father would be put on display. He always sought the glory of the father. Always sought the glory of the father. He says in verse 54 of chapter 8. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. That is the glory that I seek. That is the one who glorifies me, the Father, the Father. He said in raising Lazarus, when he was preparing to go, or actually waiting to go until he died, when he received the news of his sickness, Jesus said this to his disciples, but when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And by his being glorified by it, it would bring glory as well to his Father. And there is really here in this prayer, Father, glorify your name, a reflection of even how Jesus taught us to pray. How does the disciples' prayer begin? Our Father, uh, hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. Glorify your name in us. And so when we pray that, we're essentially praying with the same end and goal that Jesus is displaying here. Glorify your name, Father, at all costs, whatever it means, bring glory to your name. And in this way, Jesus is also the perfect model for us. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. This was the pursuit of Paul in Philippians, when he said, whether I live, whether I die, whatever happens, whether it's by staying in this world or going out of this world, he says, Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And that's what Jesus is here displaying perfectly as he has throughout his whole life, that the Father would be glorified. That he would be glorified. One has said of this prayer of Jesus, I think, 
really goes below the surface. He said, it allows us, speaking of his prayer, to penetrate into the innermost recesses of his heart. It was that the Father would be glorified. And of course, we would mention, what would that reveal in our own heart when there is a price to pay for our obedience to Christ? Would we be able to say with Christ and with Paul, Father, may your name be glorified. Whatever the cost, glorify your name. Whatever it means for my own suffering, glorify your name. Of course, the name here speaks of all of who God is, his character, his attributes, his eternal and his holy nature. Everything related to God, the Father, Jesus wanted to be put on display And he knew that would only come again through his suffering and through his death. And there's no conflict here. There's no conflict here. This is the last point before we move on. He says in verse 23 that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. There's no conflict. Which is it? Which is it? There is a sense where only Jesus could pray this prayer, right? Only He is the one who is to receive equal glory with the Father. But this is the wonder of the divine nature of God being three in one. That to glorify the Son is to glorify the Father. To glorify the Father is to glorify the Son. Those two things cannot be separated. It is impossible, as a matter of fact, to glorify the Father apart from the Son and vice versa. So Jesus says here, glorify the Son, the Son of Man, but do it so that you, Father, will receive glory. And then the Father says, I'm going to glorify you as my Son, so that then I will receive glory. This is Trinitarian nature of God. Everything Jesus did was a reflection of the work of the Father and of the glory of the Father. So how then does the cross glorify God? The first point is this, that Jesus views the cross and his suffering here, and the Father does in terms of bringing glory to his name. I'll have to go a little quicker here, but the second point is this. How does it do it? The cross of Christ glorifies God's nature and his work of redemption. The Father said in verse 28, it says, Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. There are two phases then here that he identifies to his glory. How has he glorified it? Well, he's glorified it in one sense through the whole life of Jesus, even everything that we mentioned at the beginning, through every part about the life and the person of Jesus, the name of the Father is glorified through the glory of the Son. As Jesus displayed his power and he drew the worship and the awe and the wonder and the faith of the people who witnessed it, then Christ is glorified and the Son is glorified. In that way, then, the Father has borne witness and testimony to his Son and glorified his Son as his Son, the Son of the Father. I have glorified it. I have glorified it. And there's another sense in which he glorified it uniquely here in a way that he'd only done two other times in the ministry of Jesus. The first time was at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration... God spoke again and glorified Christ before Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here he glorifies it again through an audible voice. And he says, 
I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. God was utterly committed to glorifying His Son in His ministry, in His glory as the Son, and here in His death. Here in His death. Now what then does this reveal about the glory of God? What does it reveal about the glory of God? How is He glorified in this? How is He glorified in shame? How is He glorified in suffering? And this ties in exactly to what we learned last week, doesn't it? How was, how was Job's suffering redeemed? How was Job's suffering brought into a bigger picture of God's redeeming work in the life of Job? And it all finds its answer and its substance here in Christ. Christ's own glory that he brings to the Father. Christ's own glory that he accomplishes in the redemption of his people through his suffering. Let's note just a few ways, three ways. How does it reveal his glory? First, it reveals his glory because it reveals God's provision of salvation for eternal life. It reveals God's provision of salvation for eternal life. And this actually is not a completely new thought. It was one that the Jews were largely blind to, missing. They would understand it later, some. But this is what Jesus, or God, anticipated back in Isaiah. I'm going to read the whole thing, but listen to how this begins with the servant psalm, which is primarily focused on the suffering of the servant. That's why it's called the suffering servant in that passage. But he begins it in this way, verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold... My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will be greatly exalted. He'll be greatly exalted in his suffering, in his sin-bearing death, because he will buy that purchase for himself, a people who will sing the praises of his glory and the glory of his Father. Here he says it this way. Back in John chapter 12, he says this. He says in verse 32, we'll look at first. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Verse 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. In John, this idea of being lifted up has a double meaning. Here, most specifically, the idea of lifted up is that on the cross, as it's lifted up from the earth, Christ is lifted up in crucifixion. He's lifted up as one to be publicly humiliated and crucified for all to see and bear witness to. He will be lifted up, and that's the kind of death that he's going to die. But it has another meaning in John as well. And it has the idea of Christ being lifted up not only as the substitute from the earth in crucifixion, but lifted up in his exaltation through which men would believe on him. This is what he says. I will draw all men to myself. I will draw all men to myself. So it has a saving reality to it, and that's the ultimate reality. He says back in chapter 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in Him will have eternal 
life. How is he glorified in it? Because that is the way that God will provide eternal life for his people. Through his death. Through his death. Through his suffering. And he says here again, he will draw all men to himself through this suffering. Through his death. What does he mean by that? We need to just take a brief footnote here. What does he mean then that he will draw all men to himself? Does it mean then this? Does it mean that Jesus in his death, in his great compassion, is lifting up, or lifted up to be crucified in hopes, in desperate hopes that men will come, be aware of their sin, will look at him and by their own free will be moved by the love of God shown in the cross and accept Jesus as Savior and commit to him as Lord. Does that mean, is that what it means? Does it mean maybe that all men with a little bit of help from the Spirit, just a little bit of nudge and help from the Spirit, will be able by their own recognition of Christ's death Embrace him as Savior. Is that what it means? That's not what he means at all. It's not what he means. Jesus has already made clear using this same language back in chapter 6. He said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Who are the ones who will come to him? He says later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same word. And I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes, from, or comes to me. Comes to me. Why does Jesus give those words in John chapter 6? Do you know Why? He gives the words. He tells you why, actually. In verse 36, he's speaking to the crowds. They're not getting it. And he says this, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. The reason that he gives the explanation that he does is because some were not believing and some were believing. And why is that? How can that be explained? And Jesus says it is because the Father has given to me a people and the Father will draw those people to me by teaching them internally of my glory and of their sin and creating in them faith and life by the Spirit. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. So what does he mean here by all men? How is God glorified in salvation if not all men are saved? He's glorified because... He saves all whom the Father has given to the Son. And the all men here means that it is all from all over the world. Not just the Jews, but the Greeks as well. All men from every race, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue who believes in Christ glorifies Christ and the Father for his redemption. The all men here is both Jew and Gentile. That is what started this whole conversation. 
that the Gentiles were coming to seek him. Christ is saying, I'm not only the savior of the Jews, but also of the Greeks. Equally will have their life in me. Equally will glorify the Father, not because they come from a Jewish heritage, but because they are identified with my name and have received my redemption. As a matter of fact, this is the very thing that Paul said in Ephesians. What is the mystery that was revealed? This is the mystery. He says, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not known to the sons of men before, but now has been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets in the spirit. This, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is... The glory of God that he has provided salvation not only for his people but for all men and he is glorified when all men believe and receive the eternal life that is in his son. Who are those all? All that the father has given to him. This statement is not about what Christ will probably do. It's not about what Christ will make possible to happen and hope that some will glorify God. But it is a statement about what he will actually do in perfect unity to the Father in his bringing glory to his name by accomplishing exactly what the Father ordained to happen, exactly what he sent him to do, and that his work would be perfect in its accomplishment. The Father who has given some to Christ will draw them to Christ. The Spirit will draw them to Christ. Christ came to redeem those whom the Father gave. And he said this, All whom the Father has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So how is the Father glorified? How is Christ glorified in his suffering? Because through his suffering and through his death, he will accomplish exactly what the Father sent him to do, which was to purchase a people given to him by bearing their sins on the cross, by rising from the dead. And by rising from the dead, by the sending of the Spirit, by the message of the gospel goes out, drawing all whom the Father had given to him, to himself, and giving them eternal life. So how is he glorified? Christ knows because this is how the people whom God has given me will be saved. That's how they'll be saved. And it'll be from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And there's another way within this salvation God is glorified. By the fruit of the Son's sacrifice. Look at what he said back in verse 24. We already mentioned it. He's going to be that grain of wheat that falls into the earth. And it dies. It's going to bear much fruit. How is he glorified? He's glorified every single time one of those given to the Son comes to the Son in repentant faith. Bears testimony to the truthfulness of God. To the truth of God in Christ. Trust in him. And then God is glorified. And Christ is glorified as the Son and as the Savior. He's glorified in His people as they bear the evidence of the life given to them. Jesus says that in John chapter 15, 8. He says, My Father is glorified by this, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove or become my disciples. That you bear fruit, show yourself to be my disciples, and in being my disciples, you glorify who I am and you glorify the Father and the Father is glorified. That's how he's glorified and he knows this is coming. And he knows that he's going to send the Spirit upon his glorification, whose sole ministry will to bring glory to the Father and bring those given to him, to the Son. He says of the Spirit, he will glorify me and he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. There specifically to the disciples who were going to be the mouthpieces for the gospel after the coming of the Holy Spirit. How is he glorified? He's glorified in providing through the cross salvation for you and for me and for his people. And this is exactly what we see happening as we've been reading through Acts. When the Spirit came, the church was formed and God was glorified in the Son. He was glorified in the Son. Paul says this again in Ephesians. Let me just read this to you. And then I want to move on to the second point. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church, that's the Father, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. How is God glorified? By the fact that you're here, that you're gathered in the name of Christ. And Jesus knew that this day was coming. He knew that this time was coming. A people would be formed to worship him and to love him because of his work on the cross. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have and I will. And he is glorifying it now in you and in the church. It reveals God's glory in this way as well. It reveals the judgment of God upon the world. Look at what he says in verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Judgment is upon this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. How is he glorified? How is he glorified in the cross? He's glorified in this way. And that in his suffering and death, he brings not only salvation, but ultimately judgment upon the world. The unbelieving world, that is, of course. He brings judgment upon unbelief. Again, he says this back in John 3.16. We usually only see that part on placards at sporting events. But he goes on to say this. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That was his first mission. But then he says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He says later, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. How is he going to glorify the Father? In providing a means in which God will ultimately display even his judgment upon the world. His judgment on the world. How is it his judgment upon the world? Well, in a few ways. One, it's because of this. It shows that there is no other sacrifice for sin. That there's no other sacrifice for sin. So his judgment is shown because he puts before men the choice to say, essentially, you choose to reject the witness that God has borne to his son, 
to choose the world, to choose the path that you're going to walk that is disregarding God's salvation, the Father's salvation and the Son, and you will bring upon yourself then justly all of the consequences of your sin. All of the consequences for your sin, and in that way, experience God's judgment. God's judgment. The cross of Christ then is a center point of God's judgment as well as salvation in this way as well, because it is a central testimony of God's judgment against sin. And to reject the gospel of Christ, to reject the witness that God has borne toward his son, is to call God a liar. It's to call him a liar. You probably don't think of it in those terms, but that's how God thinks of it. 1 John chapter 5, he who has not received the witness of the father to his son has made him a liar. He basically said it's not true. It's not true. Christ isn't all whom he claimed to be. And his work on the cross is, all not, is not all that God said it would be. And that's why Jesus says this actually later in the chapter. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative. But the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as what to say and what to speak. So Jesus is essentially saying this. My word and my life and my work stands on its own. It is the testimony of God. You think in unbelief, speaking to unbelievers, maybe some here, you think that God needs somehow to vindicate himself to you, that somehow God has to keep giving himself evidence for you and eventually hope that you'll believe. And God says, no, I have given evidence. Your unbelief is actually a testimony against yourself so that when I judge, your unbelief is going to be my compiled evidence against you for rejecting what was so clear, rejecting what was so plain. And in that way, Judgment is now upon the world. Man is left without excuse, as it were. Because Christ has been crucified. He has received the witness of the Father. He has been raised from the dead. A sacrifice has been provided. And now unbelief is without excuse. One commentator says this, The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus. Not only has it perpetually debated who he was, but climactically in the cross... In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. There's a third way it reveals his glory. His salvation and eternal life for his people. God's ultimate judgment that's going to come on the world based on what Christ accomplished. And number third, in God's ultimate destruction of Satan. Look at what he says. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He will be cast out. He says in verse John 3, 8, that Christ has come. He has destroyed the works of the devil. And ultimately, this destruction is going to come not only, not only now in terms of he has destroyed the work of the devil by being the ultimate sacrifice. He mentions that in Hebrews 2, that he is the substance of God's salvation. But he's ultimately going to destroy the devil and cast him out of this world in one phase one in the millennial kingdom when he takes the devil and the false prophet and he casts them into a pit and he binds them for a thousand years. And then he's ultimately going to cast him out of this world when Satan rises again and then he judges him forever in his eternal judgment in the lake 
of fire and God creates a new heaven and a new earth and Satan is forever cast out of that world. All who followed Satan are forever cast out of that world and God creates a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells, where the glory of God illumines it, where the light of the glory of God shines forever and ever and his people enjoy a relationship founded in Christ and expressed in perfect righteousness and love and holiness forever and forever in the presence of God where he has designed by his own sovereign purposes to lavish the riches of his kindness on them in Christ Jesus forever. And in that moment and in that time, God alone will be glorified. And he's looking at that time and he says, how is he going to be glorified? God's going to save his people and bring glory to his name through his sacrifice. He's going to give judgment to the world and vindicate ultimately his name and his judgment on sin. He's going to glorify his name by casting out and ridding forever the work and the person of Satan and ultimately ending in a new heavens and a new earth. That's how God's going to glorify his name. He's going to bring glory. And I'll just mention this. He's also going to reveal God's nature and future glory. He's going to be glory to God, not only in his work, but he's going to share that glory with his children. I wish we could say more, but let me just read it. The glory you have given to me, he says in prayer to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And he says, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me will be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given to me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be within them. It's going to be a glory of Christ that we behold and marvel at through all of eternity. Now, as the men come forward and we remember Christ and his glory and his return in this future kingdom, let me at least just mention this way, as they're coming, as we close, how is God glorified then in us as children? And this is the third point that I do want to at least mention before we move close. God is glorified in his children in this way. When we see and perceive his glory in the cross, when we see his glory in the cross, He's glorified in his children when we see that glory and we embrace him who died and suffered on our behalf. When we hate our life in this world so that we might keep it to life eternal. When we serve him and follow him and desire to be with him where he is, then we bring glory to him. We glorify him when we embrace his will for our life, even if it means death. And just as a note for moms... Because it is Mother's Day. There's a unique glory that moms can bring to Christ as they demonstrate this kind of life to their children and raise a godly generation. 1 Timothy 2.15, it is by raising that godly generation that the stigma of leading the race into sin is removed and God is glorified, in this case, through motherhood. Through motherhood. Let's pray. And prepare our hearts now to remember Christ in the table. Father, we thank you for the glory, the glory that you 
revealed in the death and the suffering of your son. But it's not because that death was an end in itself. There's no real glory in that. But it is because that death demonstrates, our Lord, that you were indeed the Son of God. Your resurrection demonstrated that you were indeed the Son and your sacrifice was accepted. You're glorified in the salvation of your people. You're glorified in the affirmation of the truthfulness of your word. You're glorified in casting out Satan from this world ultimately, though he was defeated finally at the cross. And you're glorified when we embrace you and love you and follow you all of our days. May you produce in us this kind of apprehension and love for your glory at the cross. And help us now to remember that as we remember in these elements the picture of what your sacrifice brought to us salvation and a hope in your kingdom that is coming. Prepare our hearts to worship as we take these elements together. In your name, Jesus, amen.